1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome back to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. The history of revolutionary politics is rich enough that it includes the full spectrum of inspiration and tragedy. Those with revolutionary aspirations have a number of rocks in their shoes to deal with, perhaps most famously the failure of the Soviet Union and the shadow of Stalinism. Those looking to remain faithful to the spirit of revolutionary Marxism, while still seriously reckoning with the tragedies of the past, will need to develop new routes, and for that to happen, alternative figures and histories will need to be turned to. One such figure many have found inspiration in is James P. Cannon, the American activist and agitator, most famous as the leading founder of American Trotskyism. And no one knows his life and times better than Brian D. Palmer, here to discuss the first entry in his multi-volume biography of Cannon. The volume discussed in this episode, James P. Cannon and the origins of the American Revolutionary Left 1890-1928, to 1928, covers Cannon's life from his birth in a small town in Kansas to his expulsion in 1928 from the Communist Party. It's a story of a small town local agitator who ends up mired in international controversy, surrounded by factional infighting in his own country, that was also deeply rooted in the revolutionary degeneration happening in Moscow as Stalin took over the party. In the face of this, Cannon slowly became depressed and disillusioned in a political fog that wouldn't be cleared until he stumbled upon a document in 1928 by Leon Trotsky that would point the way towards a revolutionary alternative that neither succumbed to Stalinism or capitalist capitulation. It's for this reason that Palmer's account of Cannon's life— allows him to tell a very different history of communism in the 20th century, one that has been banished and dismissed for too long, and that will no doubt provide inspiration for many in the 21st century. Originally published in 2007 as part of the Illinois University Press Series, The Working Class in American History, it won the Wallace K. Ferguson Prize of the Canadian Historical Association. Its sequel, the much longer James P. Cannon and the emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928 to 38, was published much more recently and will be discussed in a later episode. In both works, Palmer's command of the vast archives of material are combined with an incredible capacity for storytelling, hitting a sweet spot of rigorous research and compelling historical reading. Anyone interested in the history of Marxism, American labor, class struggle, or simply looking for an alternative to the rotten decay of our current order will find this book richly rewarding. Brian D. Palmer is Professor Emeritus of History at Trent University. He is the former editor of Labor and is the author of numerous books on radical socialist movements and labor history, including Revolutionary Teamsters, the Minneapolis Trucker Strike of 1934, Cultures of Darkness, Night Travels and the Histories of Transgression, and Marxism and Historical Practice. He is also co editor with Paul LeBlanc and Thomas Bias of the three volume document collection, U.S. Trotskyism from 1928 to 65. Brian Palmer, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me.
0: Yeah, very excited to talk to you about this today. So, to kick things off, I always like to have guests introduce themselves. Could you tell listeners a bit about? who you are, and what your work and research has tended to focus on?
1: Uh, Sure. My name is Brian Palmer. I uh, am a long-time historian of labor and the left. Um, I have taught in Canada uh, at three universities, Simon Fraser, uh, um, Queen's University, and in the later part of my career at Trent University in Peterborough, where I was a Canada Research Chair in... Uh, Canadian studies with an interest in social justice uh, issues, uh, labor, and the left. Um, And I was originally uh, trained in the United States at the State University of New York at Binghamton, where I did a PhD, Um, but I was always interested in uh, Canadian history and Canadian labor history, Uh, and I've been mainly involved in that. But in the 1990s, I began uh, a project on the history of American Trotskyism with a focus on Uh, a figure who was a founding uh, member in in the American uh, Trotskyist movement, James P. Cannon. And that's really what we're going to talk about today is is the writings on Cannon, I think.
0: Yeah. So to kick things off, your political commitments to Marxism and left politics are apparent in the content of a lot of your work, including writing these biographies of James Cannon. But those commitments also seem to bring with them some different theoretical approaches as well. So often more mainstream biographies today will involve a lot of time trying to get at the inner life of the subject, perhaps doing some rudimentary psychoanalysis to get at their, you know, quote unquote, real self. Your approach is instead to allow Cannon's real self and his personality to make themselves apparent through the way he conducted his life. I'm wondering if you could, to begin, explain this, unpacking how your political and theoretical commitments inform your approaches to research and storytelling, and what for you sets a properly Marxist or materialist biography apart from more mainstream ones?
1: Okay, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I think uh, I start with the, the sort of biographical treatment of canon, not so much with uh, canon, the individual, but with an attempt to look at the development of the Trotskyist movement, which he played such a fundamental role in, and the way in which his personality, uh, his strengths, and his weaknesses, uh, and he had many on both sides, uh, contributed to that movement. Um, I think the difference probably between, uh, a, uh, uh, if you, in a general sense, between a Marxist uh, approach to biography and a mainstream approach to biography, is that Marxists are probably not so much interested in uh, the individual as in how the politics and the individual mesh and how they relate to the movements uh, that uh, the individual was involved in. Um, If you look at, for instance, I would say the major example of a Marxist biography is probably... Isaac Deutscher's uh, uh, three-volume biography of Trotsky, Um, it really does place the monopoly of analysis and research on Trotsky's political life, Um, in some ways to the detriment of a study of his personal life, uh, his family life, his uh, individual character, although those are never entirely absent. Um, what I found in writing about canon, uh, for, for probably two reasons. Uh, um, in writing about canon, I tended to spend a bit more time than Deutscher did with, with uh, the personal. Uh, in part, A, I think because canon was uh, less significant than Trotsky in a sort of world historic sense. The movement he led, much smaller. Uh, the events he was involved in far less momentous than, say, the Russian Revolution of 1917. Um, and because Cannon's movement was much smaller, uh, his personal character uh, perhaps played more of a role uh, in you know, leaving its imprint on the history of American Trotskyism. Um, so I do try to cover uh, aspects of Canon's uh, um, private life, but I do so, as I think all Marxist biographies would, by situating them in the context of of his times and of the movements that he tried to build and the social, uh, political, uh, cultural struggles he was involved in. Um, I think that's really uh, the central kind of you know feature. Uh, that may distinguish uh, a Marxist biography from a more mainstream one uh, in the sense that Marxists are not generally aligned with the view that great men make history. In some senses, they are of the view that history may make or break great men, Uh, but uh, um, there is a, a difference in some sense of accent.
0: A troubling meta question you raise in the introduction is this book's place in a long trajectory of attempts to make sense of the American left with numerous attempts by waves of historians to revise what it actually was and what its significance today might be. And this often obscures as much as it reveals. Central to this question for you is Theodore Draper, who offered throughout his own life several layers or orientations to his interpretation of the movement many of which have been picked up by various historians. Can you tell us a bit about this odd history of histories and what you're hoping to achieve with these biographies in this respect?
1: Yeah, and really that gets to, I think, the fundamental reason why I decided to write about canon. Uh, The historiography, when I started to research uh, and approach canon in 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 the 1990s, in terms of American, uh, the the historiography of the American Communist Party, was largely bifurcated into two schools of thought. A traditionalist school, which very much harkened back to Draper, and was in some senses uh, cast within the mold of a kind of liberal Cold War historiography of the late 50s and early 60s, really saw American communism as a foreign import. As coming to America via Moscow, and in some senses, therefore, uh, ultimately and inevitably, uh, failing to intersect with uh, the the character of American political life, and hence its failure. Um, Draper certainly saw this, uh, and uh, his his writing evolved. There's no doubt about that and changed a bit over time. But on balance, Draper saw American communism as imposed upon the American radical experience by Moscow. And his followers, uh, Harvey Clare and uh, John Haynes and others, have carried on this tradition. Now, a second and counterposed school of thought emerged really in the aftermath of the new left in the 1960s. And it tended to see uh, American communism not as a Moscow imposition, but as an indigenous uprising of uh, American radicals struggling against racism, fighting for social justice, trying to um, recast uh, uh, the labor movement in more militant forms and address a whole series of social justice issues. Uh, in, In a way, then, these two schools are mirror images of one another. Neither one of them really addressed the, I think, critical problem of Stalinism, what it was, and how it uh, uh, basically uh, colored in a whole series of negative ways uh, the communist experience, not only in the United States, but internationally. Um, What canon was, was a way, in some senses, to get around this impasse between these clashing but related historiographies. Um, Cannon was a native son. He was a second generation Irish immigrant who grew up within the American radical tradition. Uh, he, was, he ran through uh, the uh, 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 American experience of radicalism in the first two decades of the 20th century through labor defense campaigns, through joining the left wing of the Socialist Party, through being an active agitator in the industrial workers of the world. And he came to communism through his recognition of what the Russian Revolution meant for radicalism internationally, what World War I meant and why it it was so pivotal. And he charted a path out of the sort of uh, underground communist movement that had emerged in the aftermath of uh, the Russian Revolution Towards an open communist party, he was the first chair of. Uh, uh, he chaired the founding meeting of the American Communist Party in 1921. So, in some senses, he he is a he is an expression of the indigenous American radicalism, as well as the importance of the Russian Revolution, and he came to see the 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 degeneration of that revolution through Stalin's increasing control in the 1920s, and was won over to Trotskyism as the vehicle through which to sort of uh, retain the lessons of uh, of the October 1917 revolution and apply them creatively to the American experience.
0: Yeah, you've been alluding to my final meta question in the beginning before diving in, and that is why write about James Cannon. You note in the beginning and emphasize throughout the text that Cannon was not a lone fighter, but instead one of many crucial characters trying to organize the working class along a Marxist or communist line. And you could have written a biography about Will Foster, Errol Broder, or Jay Lovestone, um, or Max Schachtman. But for you, Cannon stands out among this crowd as being emblematic of the movement he was a part of. Why does Cannon stand out for you? And how does centering him help you explain the story of this movement in a way that other characters wouldn't?
1: Well, I think that what... What drew me to Cannon was that, in some senses, he is the red thread of continuity within American radicalism. Tracing back to the influence of the, of, of the Russian Revolution of 1917, Cannon often said that he was a wobbly, for instance, which is a quintessentially American radical movement, who learned something from the Russian Revolution. And what he learned was the necessity of uh, uh, taking the struggle at the point of production into the political arena, something that the Wobblies were always really handicapped in doing because of their uh, uh, militant and revolutionary syndicalist orientation, which had many positive features, but which also uh, left them sort of uh, unable unable to really deal with the state. Uh, So Cannon uh, drew on that American tradition, learned from what the Russian Revolution had to teach, saw the Russian Revolution degenerate over the course of the 1920s and moved away from the limitations of a Stalinized Communist Party, something, for instance, that Lovestone, Browder, and Foster, all of whom made unique contributions to the development of early American communism, as did Cannon, but who could never break from then the stranglehold that Stalinism exercised over them. Cannon did. And to me, that's why he represents uh, uh, really the best strain of the American revolutionary tradition.
0: Turning to the story of Cannon's life, you spend the first couple chapters on his upbringing in Rosedale, Kansas, where he led a relatively comfortable childhood, although material hardship wasn't a totally foreign concept. Uh, And this would inculcate a certain Midwest Main Street sensibility that he would carry throughout his life. And it would also be where he got his first taste of radical politics, albeit of a small town local sort. Could you tell us a bit about his origins and what his early politics looked like?
1: Yeah, I I, I, I differ slightly on the comfortableness of his childhood. Um, He came from a a, he was he was the son of two uh, Irish uh, first generation Irish immigrants uh, to the United States. They moved to, uh, uh, and where, where Cannon grew up, to an industrial hamlet outside of Kansas City, a place called Rosedale, Kansas. It had a certain uh, um, uh, bucolic kind of character to it. Um, you know, Cannon had a childhood where he, he played in streams and forests around, around his, 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 his working class uh, um, domicile, which was always very modest. He did lose a thumb when he accompanied his father to an industrial accident. Um, His parents were uh, almost uh, classic Irish immigrant types, the mother, a devoted Catholic, the father, a kind of Irish Republican radical who introduced him to Eugene Debs and the sort of political writings of the socialist uh, milieu in the United States at the time. And from there, Cannon gravitated uh, through friends of his father's into the Socialist Party and into the industrial workers of the world, which he joined in. 1911. It was from that point that he dated uh, his commitment to uh, the revolutionary cause. Um, I think what was most and, and, and what was most notable was that Cannon was a, a, a you know enamored of learning. Uh, he was a reader. Uh, he wanted to continue his education, but he couldn't uh, because they didn't. The family didn't basically have enough money to sustain him. Uh, and really, he he, but he, he learned from that experience, I think, uh, something about uh, the impoverishment and the immiseration of the American working class uh, in, its, in its quintessentially kind of Midwestern forms. And he took a great umbrage at uh, social injustices of all kind. And he really, uh, he had his pulse in some sense, he had his finger on the pulse in some sense of working class life in America. Um, This is something that almost all of his contemporaries, including those who were quite critical of him, recognized. He was an orator of great power. Uh, He could allude to uh, sort of the meanings of life in America and its substance in ways that many of the American uh, revolutionary left at this time seemed somewhat divorced from. I mean, most of the American revolutionary left, particularly in the communist underground, were immigrants first-generation immigrants, many non-English speakers, Russians, Finns, uh, Jews from various uh, parts of Eastern Europe. And to many of them, Cannon represented the quintessential American working class, uh, even though his parents were first-generation Irish immigrants. Um, This is something that he cultivated and developed and worked to great advantage over the course of his life as a revolutionary.
0: Cannon joined the Socialist Party in 1908, but would later say his entry into revolutionary politics was actually in 1911, when he joined the IWW. So as a Wobbly, he joined many other hobos as a traveling agitator, hopping trains to various locations to help wage class struggle. Well, he would later have some more critical reflections on the limitations of this approach and would slowly transition to being a member of the Home Guard it would also be a time of rich political education for him. Could you tell us about these early days of organizing and what he took from them? Yeah, I think
1: the, the, the IWW for Cannon was a nursery of revolutionary uh, act, activism. Um, he learned a great deal uh, as he traveled from one kind of strike-bound community to another. Uh, he made friends with and learned from uh, sort of iconic figures uh, in the in the in the industrial workers of the world, people like Vincent St. John, who was a central leader in the Chicago headquarters, who basically sent people like Cannon out on various missions, various uh, uh, sort of uh, um, jobs uh, for the IWW, and he learned from figures like Frank Little, who was part Cherokee and who was uh, eventually uh, um, killed by vigilantes, um, how to stand up to. Uh, um, Class enemies and how to basically uh, exercise a, a leadership capacity in front of masses of striking workers. Um, for Cannon, he also learned in in, in these uh, um, uh, IWW uh, activities how to soapbox, how to be a how to be a, a powerful uh, orator and and a speaker on street corners and at you know massive uh, strike rallies. He also learned uh, uh, increasingly. Um, he had this in him earlier, I think, but he also learned how to write. I mean, he was he was often sent out to uh, work with uh, editors in you know in places in Pennsylvania where the industrial worker was edited. Um, so he he and he wrote you know little columns. One of them was called Cannonballs, uh, which were was 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 basically about uh, um, you know various class struggles going on. Um, so for Cannon, uh, this was really. Uh, the school in which he learned uh, basically the the tenets of militancy class struggle politics combativeness uh, in the workplace and he learned as well because he was sent out to so many of various places different kinds of experiences in different work settings among Akron rub wor- rubber workers uh, among you know mill workers in Duluth, uh, Among uh, free speech campaigns in places like you know Peoria, Illinois, somewhat off the beaten track, Um, this was Cannon's, uh, in some senses, baptism uh, in the class struggles of 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 American workers.
0: The October Revolution in nineteen seventeen would send shockwaves throughout the world and would force everyone to radically rethink what was possible and how it might be achieved. Cannon was not exempt from this. His primary takeaway. Uh, seeming to center around the importance of the Bolsheviks' political discipline that gave them the capacity to punch above their weight, although this was not the only conclusion being drawn by American leftists. Can you unpack Cannon's own revelations from 1917 and how they fit or at times didn't with his contemporaries? What was the broader response at the time among particularly the American left?
1: Well, in 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 the IWW that he was in at the time, the Russian Revolution was welcomed enthusiastically, but somewhat um, uh, skeptically, I, I suppose, because of uh, the, uh, the sort of political orientation as opposed to the industrial orientation that the IWW uh, certainly embraced. And I think what, what is tied in very closely with the Russian Revolution is World War I and the left's response to that. Uh, cannon saw a dual uh, sort of problem with the industrial workers of the world at the time in 1917 in that it could not confront the state and state power effectively Uh, at the time there were uh, massive repression on the part of the state of of the IWW there were three trials going on in 1917 1918 and in all three trials the IWW had actually three different approaches. They ran a silent trial in one. Uh, they tried to run a political trial in another. And in a third, they simply, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, tried to, to basically fight on a legal basis. And Cannon thought this exhibited or indicated the failure of the, of the IWW to come to grips with state repression. Similarly with war, he saw the Socialist Party, which took an an anti-war stand in 1917, garnering a great deal of support across the country, whereas the IWW didn't know exactly what its position on the war was. Uh, So that moved him away from the IWW. And also, theoretically, it moved him into a kind of internationalist stand. Uh, Prior to this, Cannon's Marxism and the Marxism of the left and the Socialist Party was really quite rudimentary. It was based on a few pamphlets by Marx, Wages, Price, and Profits, and a few other popular writings. Um, What the Russian Revolution and the war did was introduce Cannon to the international debates that went on. Lenin's pamphlet on the state and revolution or his pamphlet on left-wing communism and infantile disorder, which was a, an attack on sectarianism. Um, these pamphlets introduced Canon to a, a sort of political organizational approach and to the importance of internationalism, which was both a practice in terms of international solidarities and alliances and a kind of, you know, accenting of the necessity of grappling with theory uh, and the theory of Marxism Uh, and, and the role that it would play in guiding revolutionaries.
0: So in the wake of 1917, many nations, including the United States, would crack down on their more radical and subversive elements, forcing Cannon and many other comrades to operate clandestinely. While well, Cannon understood the importance of underground work, he quickly grew frustrated and disillusioned with it, seeing it give birth to dead ends such as factionalism and ultra-leftism. This led to a push on Cannon's part to start a workers' party above the ground. Could you tell us a bit about the debates among American leftists on this proposed transition?
1: Yeah, well, again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you have to appreciate that during this period of 1917 to 1920, the far left in the United States, the left of the Socialist Party, and various underground communist currents, were composed largely, overwhelmingly, of immigrant uh, uh, um, revolutionaries—Russians, uh, Finns, Latvians, Lithuanians, etc. Letts—and uh, and many of them came from a European context, in which they. Their only experience was one of the intense repression of autocratic regimes like Tsarism in Russia. They had a great deal of difficulty breaking out of the boundaries that that imposed upon them in the United States. It was, after all, fairly easy to see bourgeois democracy as something of a sham. And so you still needed to stay clandestine, underground, very close-knit, Uh, clandestine cells, really. And this was the way that the early underground communist movement was organized. Cannon saw that American conditions did indeed offer openings for above-ground activity. And that above-ground activity was vital if communism was ever going to be anything other than underground cells of non-American-born workers so he pushed very much for an above ground activity and in this he was given the the staunch and unrelenting support of the bolsheviks in russia lenin glanced at some you know uh, underground communist newspapers and scrawled you know in the margins stop this nonsense i mean he knew that you had to actually inter- interact with the american working class above ground A- an anecdote in 1920 Earl Browder, 1919 or 1920, Earl Browder came to New York City. He and Cannon had been comrades in Kansas City. They'd started a a revolutionary newspaper, uh, The Workers' World, together. They had been close. Browder had a great deal of difficulty even finding Cannon as part of the underground communist milieu. They couldn't even locate one another. So isolating was this undergroundism. And what Cannon did was he worked to connect up uh, those elements in the immigrant uh, revolutionary milieu—Jews, some Russians, etc.—that actually were open to the notion of an above-ground communist party. And he was described as a kind of mechanic working among uh, the machinery of communism and kind of melding it and oiling it so that the above-ground possibilities. Uh, could be uh, realized. And that was why he ended up being the founding chair of the American Communist Party uh, in 1921 at its its original meeting. He was really the architect of an above-ground legal communist movement. In
0: 1922, Cannon would travel to Moscow attending numerous meetings and conferences, meeting a number of high-profile Soviet leaders, and seeking leadership regarding the question uh, of whether to go above ground or maintain underground work. In addition to seeking resolution for this particular question, this would set up a trend for much of the rest of the decade where the common turn in Moscow would be treated as an authoritative voice for American communists. Could you tell us about the particular decision that was reached here, as well as the broader trend that would be established of deferring to common turn authority?
1: Yeah, I think the fundamental point to, 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 to realize and recognize in grappling with that question is the extent to which the international communist movement and these conferences in Moscow of the communist international shifted over time. Lenin died in 1923-24, I'm not exactly sure the exact date, uh, and that changed things quite dramatically. Uh, Stalin was on the rise, Trotsky on the fall, uh, although nothing was really written in stone until later in the nineteen twenties. But when Cannon first encountered the Russian Re- Russian revolutionaries in nineteen twenty-two, he found them open, principled, willing to discuss, and capable able to give advice, which he found exemplary. Not only the question of should the American communist movement work above ground, but for instance, on the question of American blacks. The early Common Turn had a decisive role in pushing communists away from the sort of subtle racism, and, and often not so subtle, of the old left wing of the, of the socialist party of pushing uh, American communists to go beyond the old slogan of black and white unite and fight to actually address uh, the whole question of the centrality of blacks to the American struggle. Uh, Lenin pushed John Reed, for instance, to address this uh, before Reed um, ended up dying in the Soviet Union. And Cannon was, was, was very impressed with the openness of the discussion, with the fact that you could learn from the russian leaders you could argue with the russian leaders and you wouldn't be imposed upon you would be guided constructively but the notion was it was the american party's responsibility to take that guidance and act upon it now gradually as time wore on as stalin began to exercise more and more control as particularly in the late 1920s, the kind of Stalinist conception of socialism in one country, which meant subordinating all the communist movements around the world to the benefit and advantage of, you know, Stalin's uh, Comintern and, and Moscow. Gradually, that guidance and that open discussion shifted. And by the night at conference in 1928, Cannon discerned that this was a, really a pale and actually quite tragic reflection of previous conferences. Decisions were already taken uh, when they were supposedly to be up for debate. Increasingly from the mid-1920s on, uh, Stalin and his allies inside the Soviet Union exercised a stranglehold over decision-making in the American Party. There was a joke in the American Party you know, why is the Communist Party like the Brooklyn Bridge? And the answer was, because it's suspended by cables. And what that meant was cables was the telegram that came from Moscow. So you were always waiting for the telegram to give you the orders to actually determine even who would, who would compose the leadership of the party. And this is what gradually, you know, it took Cannon a long time, but he became very disillusioned before he moved into Trotskyism, which I assume we'll talk about later, he became very disillusioned with how things were working by the mid to late 1920s.
0: As the party attempted to move above ground, certain factions would start to appear, trying to pull the party in different directions. A central character in all this for you is John Pepper, an immigrant from Hungary who was sent to America by Zinoviev as a way of deflating some factional disputes in the common turn. Pepper managed to work his way into an already divided leadership on the American left. Could you tell us a bit about the situation Pepper found when he arrived and how he worked his way into it?
1: I think Pepper is a fascinating character, and he really is a a kind of, in some senses, personification of emerging Stalinism and, and the way in which Moscow wanted to and thought it should exercise control over an American communist movement. Pepper was Hungarian, and as you say, he was really uh, he was gotten rid of out of the common turn because he had been really a problematic element, uh, played a role in, as Trotsky once said, in strangling the Hungarian revolution. So he was sent to America, where he, um, you know, quickly he ensconced himself not only in the Hungarian section of the American Communist Party, but within a matter of months, he he had he had he had become. Uh, um, exceptionally fluent in English, which was quite an accomplishment and he uh, had worked his way into all manner of leadership positions and influential roles within the American Communist Party's leadership um, and he aligned himself with existing an existing faction that of the uh, Lovestone uh, uh, Ruthenberg group Ruthenberg would 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 die in 1927 Lovestone would carry on the leadership. And this was, a, this was a faction that was, in some senses, opposed to the more trade union-oriented factions or labor defense factions that uh, Cannon at the time and William Z. Foster controlled. Um, but the party, and this was part of Stalinization, Stalin actually encouraged these kinds of factions to exist because it kept the party divided and unbalanced and really off-kilter and made it easier for uh, Moscow emissaries to come in Uh, and, you know, sort of punch above their weight. Um, So Pepper just ensconced himself uh, in this milieu and became really a major decision maker in the American, you know, Communist Party. In the span of, you know, a year or two, he was calling the shots. And he was pushing some really outrageous political positions, particularly around a farmer labor party that he saw as an amalgam of You know, all the class forces in America that uh, could be marshaled to dissidents, which in one statement, he, you know, Pepper actually said even included the Klan because he saw them as kind of outside the ranks of, you know, main the mainstream bourgeois parties. Um, Cannon always locked horns with Pepper, but he didn't really for a long time understand, you know, Pepper's authority. And no one in the American party could figure out why Pepper was exercising such an influence. Yet it was his capacity to come in to sort of wear the mantle of Moscow emissary and to kind of begin to, the, the, the process of, of kind of dictating, really, a uh, course of developments. And so Cannon was always vociferous in his antagonism uh, and opposition to uh, Pepper. And among others, uh, Foster disliked him equally, but they thought that, you know, Pepper's pyrotechnics, as they said, were, were incredible. Um, but it spoke to the, the, the instability that Stalinist degeneration cultivated inside the party.
0: Moving into the mid-1920s, Cannon would make attempts at a Bolshevization of the party, attempting to develop a militant and disciplined group capable of building towards a revolutionary capacity for the working class in the United States. Ironically enough, this attempt was at the same time as Stalin's takeover in the USSR, which put Cannon in an odd position of factional disputes and contradictory politics for several years. Can you explain the early impact of Stalin's takeover on the Workers' Party and the tensions that would start to emerge and strain as a result?
1: Yeah, well, as I've said, I mean, one, one of the early impacts was this factionalism that, that developed. And really, there were three major factions. The, you could call them, in some senses, the political leadership faction around Ruthenberg and Lovestone and Pepper, uh, the trade union faction around uh, William Z. E. Foster, and the labor defense faction around Cannon and Shackman, who uh, helped to found the International Labor Defense Organization, which was the Communist Party's leading uh, mass organization. Um, And they were able to sort of continue and to jostle in this instability because each faction, in some senses, was allowed its monopoly over work in a specific sector, and they could hive themselves off and spend their time, you know, working on that particular Uh, kind of aspect of the communist movement. But it was an unbalance and an imbalance that over time necessarily had to give. Um, In terms of uh, um, uh, Cannon's uh, um, influence in there, I lost the main thread. Could you repeat the the second part of your question what this really was about? Uh, Well,
0: uh, I'm curious at this point um, about Stalin's capacity to exercise power, I guess, in his h- how he exercised his own authority, even if it was in subtle and indirect ways, um, yeah. the effect of Stalinization on American communism at the time.
1: Well, I think there's all kinds of indirect ways, but in some senses, the direct way was most apparent in a late 1920s, 1920s leadership conference where. Uh, actually, Foster had the uh, votes to be declared the, you know, the 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 leading figure in the in the American communist movement. At that point, Stalin didn't quite trust uh, Foster to be uh, a, a sort of unbridled uh, advocate, and he saw uh, and and he saw Lovestone as as equally problematic. Cannon was really off the radar screen. And basically, what, he, what Stalin did was he sent a telegram through uh, uh, a, an emissary who was present at the conference and speaking on behalf of Stalin, a man named Gusev. And Gusev read the, you know, after they'd had a vote that was basically showed that Foster was, you know, to, about to be the leader. And of course, Foster lusted after this leadership position. It was taken away from him and given in, in in a limited way to Lovestone. For Cannon and others, this was the last straw. Uh, and Cannon began then to basically move away from, uh, in some senses, his own leadership positions. He became disillusioned. And it wouldn't be until, until he went, was pressed to go uh, to uh, um, the 1928 uh, Congress, where he you know, encountered Trotsky's document explaining many of the problems. And he gravitated towards, uh, um, towards uh, Trotskyism as, a, as an alternative and an answer. But before that, he had, he had tried to, for instance, break the factional logjam. At one point, he, he, he gathered his followers in his faction and said, look, this is a dead end. We can't keep up this factional, you know, these factional impasses what we have to create is a faction against factionalism. And so he said, we will now vote entirely on the basis of the political issue at hand, and and we'll go beyond a kind of factional alignments of our loyalties. And we will discuss things only in terms of, is this politically the right move? Because before Uh, people had been voting pretty much pro forma along factional lines. Now, it didn't change all that much, but what it did was it articulated within the party the necessity of moving outside of these established factional parameters and trying to move in new directions to break down uh, that factionalism.
0: Yeah, one place where Cannon was actually fairly successful in your reading in engaging was engaging in agitational work, Uh, and this was via International Labor Defense and its attendant magazine, Labor Defender. The work often involved raising awareness for prisoners of class war, organizers, and strikers who were put in prison. Meanwhile, Labor Defender managed to achieve substantial circulation and was a fairly innovative news outlet compared to some of the more outdated magazines and papers in radical America. Could you speak to the successes and impact Cannon managed to find here throughout the mid-1920s?
1: Yeah, I think the International Labor Defense was, without doubt, the Communist Party's most effective uh, mass organization. It grew out of conversations that Cannon had with uh, an old uh, industrial workers of the world leader, William D. Haywood, uh, and Haywood was had, had basically escaped repression uh, in the 1918 period, and traveled and settled in Moscow, where he lived in the Lux Hotel, which is where a lot of Americans put up at that time. Um, and Cannon met with him. They had contact from their old IWW days, and they decided that an organization that actually uh, defended uh, class war prisoners was what uh, America needed. And Cannon then, uh, with his partner Rose Karster, Car- and with his, his comrade Max Shackman and others, set up the International Labor Defense Organization in 1925. And this was a nonpartisan uh, but communist-led organization. And that meant that it defended all class war prisoners. So it defended anarchists. Um, it defended, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, labor rights. It defended trade unionists. You didn't have to be a member of the Communist Party to uh, draw its support. And it it, it engaged... it. Uh, uh, a classic case was that of Tom Mooney, who'd been uh, uh, arrested for a preparedness nay bombing uh, in 1918 and was languishing in jail. Um, but a leading case was also that of Sacco and Vanzetti, two uh, anarchists uh, arrested in Mass and, and charged in Massachusetts with a robbery, where the evidence was, uh, to say the least, uh, incomplete and inadequate. Uh, but they were sent to the electric chair in 1927. And Cannon and uh, the International Labor Defense uh, helped to mobilize masses of people in in large protests. Um, Again, I think this this work suited Cannon because he had always been, uh, in fact, his his origins as a revolutionary leftist lay in the defense of political prisoners, Uh, and he had he had been active in this uh, from the time he was a teenager. Um, and allowed him to travel the country, um, visit prisoners in jail, uh, mount rostrums and podiums to defend uh, you know, Italian militants from being deported back to Italy, where they would face uh, fascist execution, uh, a whole series of, of uh, um, you know, mass mobilizations that brought Cannon to the fore. And it was in this period that the Cannon-Shackman partnership really gelled. And Shackman was uh, uh, played a fundamental role in making the uh, Labor Defender a far more innovative uh, magazine of class war defense uh, than many of the other rather staid uh, publications of the American uh, revolutionary left. He used photo montages. He drew on European avant-garde kind of modes of presentation, uh, and uh, the Labor Defender was, uh, you know, an extremely uh, influential uh, magazine that reached well outside of the boundaries of the American Communist Party.
0: In the spring of 1927, Cannon and several others arrived again in Moscow to have a number of questions settled regarding political orientations and with the hopes of settling the brewing factional disputes. Again, the results of turning to the common turn achieved uh, resulted in some bizarre and contradictory impulses for the Americans, with even Stalin himself op- offering up his own decrees on the situation. Well in the moment it appeared that canon would emerge in a leadership position, the common turn decision would yield a two-sidedness that would ultimately favor Lovestone. Could you tell us what was decided in Moscow at this time, and what were the politics that emerged?
1: Oh um well this was uh, really a, a a preface to uh so some developments that were that were going on uh do you, do you mean the 1928 congress or the or the 19-
0: 1927
1: yeah um that that's that's the congress that uh um uh where uh Stalin was really consolidating his leadership that would really come into full flower uh, in 1928. Um, This was a period when uh, um, really uh, the leadership was further bifurcated by Stalin and in some senses emasculated. Um, It was at at this point that it was very clear to Cannon that Stalin was exercising uh, really a decisive control and influence over who, who would lead the American party and that there was really no independence now uh, within, the, within the American party. Uh, to canon, it was still unclear why this was going on and uh, um, there was a necessity for him to sort of grapple with the, the explanations that Trotsky would later uh, um, provide. But at that point, he was really in some senses at sea and increasingly disaffected and disillusioned.
0: Yeah, so moving forward a year ahead to uh, 1928, in the late summer of July and September of 1928, the sixth Comintern Congress would convene in Moscow. Among the various meetings and conferences being held, a sort of fluke of an event would cause shockwaves for many of those in attendance, as a document by Trotsky himself by then formally exiled and being hounded by a vicious political campaign would emerge in the form of a partial translation of his draft program of the communist international, a criticism of fundamentals. Before getting to the response to it, can you set the stage for us by explaining Trotsky's position and reputation at the time of the Congress, what the document said, and how it found its way into circulation?
1: Well, Trotsky was certainly out of favor uh, in the Communist International at that point. And uh, those like Zinoviev uh, um, and others who kind of had their fingers in the the air, uh, you know, testing the winds, knew that uh, Trotsky was uh, probably done. Um, But he still uh, commanded enough uh uh i suppose uh, credibility in sectors of the common turn because of his leading role in the in the in the russian revolution and his leadership of the red army that he would and, and his long-standing uh place as a as a, in some senses the inheritor of of lenin's mantle that he was he did he was allowed to 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 write and circulate a draft program of criticism of of the communist international Some think that Stalin was actually Machiavellian enough to allow him to write this, to allow it to be circulated in limited ways, but in very closely monitored ways, so that Stalin could get his his finger on who was attracted to uh, these Trotskyist views, Uh, so that it would allow him uh, the better to repress them. Um, I'm, there's no, there's not evidence enough to, uh, to sustain that kind of argument, I think, but it is uh, worth pondering. Um, the Cannon was on a, to backtrack a bit, Cannon did not even want to go to the Congress in 1928. Uh, he had to be pressured by his own, uh, colleagues and comrades, uh, in his, in his factional grouping. Uh, He was so disaffected and so disillusioned that he was really in the process of withdrawing in some senses uh, from uh, a a lot of his leadership role. Um, But he was pressed to go. He said, quite frankly, that his heart wasn't in it. Um, He got to Moscow, uh, and he was on a, 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 a committee that had access to this Trotskyist document. He and a Canadian named Morris Spector. Who the who who was also a dissident and had been grappling with some of the same issues in the Canadian, uh, in his experience in the Canadian Party. Um, together they poured over the document, and it really uh, opened Cannon's eyes uh, to what had gone on, um, not just internationally, because the document was very critical of, for instance, uh, the role that uh, the Communist International had played in subverting. Uh, the Chinese Revolution uh, in 1926-27. It was very critical of the way that um, the Communist Party in Britain had functioned during the general strike in 1926. Uh, In all of these cases, the fundamental issue uh, for Trotsky and and analytically was the elaboration of the Stalinist program in opposition to Lenin's and Trotsky's long-held Views of, of, of world revolution and internationalism to uh, Stalin counterposed to Stalin's uh, emerging view of socialism in one country, uh, and and what the Chinese revolution and the uh, Anglo uh, uh, um, uh, British developments had revealed was the extent to which the common turn was subordinating revolutionary movements around the world to the interests of the Soviet Union. Um, but more than that, the document also explained much that had gone wrong, uh, in the American, uh, communist party experience. And in particular, it zeroed in on Pepper's, uh, um, elaborations of, uh, you know, uh, um, the need for a, a farmer labor party, a cross class party, uh, that would link all dissidents, uh. In an American revolutionary upheaval, uh, something that Trotsky saw as uh, not just a pipe dream, but uh, a a, uh, a fundamentally uh, wrong-headed understanding of the sort of class nature of the struggle in America. Um, so for Cannon, this uh, all of a sudden, and he had been no, by no means had he been a Trotskyist. He'd been critical of, of Trotsky, and he went along with the critiques of Trotsky that were emanating from the Common Turn. In the mid 1920s. But he saw, in some senses, the error of his own ways. He saw that much that he had become disillusioned with was now explained. And he and Spector decided to um, take this document uh, and return to uh, 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 North America with it. They had to smuggle it out. Uh, and uh, from there, they would go to try to uh, sort of rebuild. A communist uh, movement in, in North America on the basis of uh, the old tenets uh, and tried tenets of 1917 and of Trotsky's critique.
0: Yeah. Um, developing more of what Cannon did upon reading this, you've already talked about how he was suffering at the time a lot of political confusion and disillusion due to these years of factional infighting. As well as a common turn that was failing to clarify things. And reading Trotsky's document was a sort of revelation for him and several other comrades. Uh, while he was still formally in attendance at numerous meetings in Moscow, his mission at the Congress sund- suddenly changed. Could you tell us how he ended up spending a lot of the time he had left in Moscow, and shortly thereafter?
1: Yeah. Again, it was precisely at this point that his own faction. Which, which was largely unaware of the Trotsky document and Cannon's reception of it, they pushed Cannon to assert himself and actually struggle for a leadership role, the the preeminent leadership role within the uh, um, within the American Party, because it seemed that everything was up for grabs. Foster had lost control in some senses of his caucus. Uh, Stalin and uh, Lenarsky, who was the head of the uh, Red uh, Trade Union International, were dubious about Foster's um, uh, uh, um, loyalties to uh, to Stalin. Lovestone had cast his lot, you know, uh, in what was a <laughs> a gross kind of misjudgment uh, with Bukharin. Who Stalin was in the midst of deposing um, and so everything seemed up for grabs and Canon was it was felt among Canon's supporters that he would be a logical candidate to step into the vacuum and take over. but for Canon to have done this would have been a repudiation of the of the Trotskyist document that he had just basically you know assimilated and was coming to see the validity of. So he played a, uh, a backseat role at this point. He sat and observed more. His own followers couldn't quite understand it. Um, his closest allies, of course, were back in New York. They weren't with him at the time uh, in Moscow. People like Martin Abram, Rose Karstner, uh, Max Shackman, they were not there. Um, and he failed to convince... His long-standing associate and and comrade Bill Dunn, who uh, who stayed in the Communist Party only to be, basically drummed out of it, uh, in the nineteen forties, um, so uh, it, it was a it was a perplexing moment for Cannon's faction and for other factions who saw, in Cannon, someone who might step in, to the breach, as Foster declined. There were theoreticians uh, uh, associated with him who basically wanted Cannon because Cannon was judged to be much better than Lovestone, much more aligned with the trade union uh, kind of grouping uh, that Foster had led. Um, and Foster, indeed, there's there's some suggestion that when they got back to New York, Foster approached Cannon and said, well, maybe this Trotsky stuff is not such a bad thing and maybe we should you know, have some kind of alliance on it. But um, it was, uh, he quickly moved off of that and moved into an aggressive, antagonistic role towards Canon. So it was really uh, a decision made in 1928 in Moscow on the part of Canon and Spectre to bide their time. Uh, because they had to go back, they had to regroup, they had to win people over to them. They, they did not know who would be one to them and who would not. Uh, they had this document, but it was just a document Let's not forget they had no way of reproducing it very easily. Cannon um, kept one under his copy under the floorboards and would haul it out to show people who kind of made his made their way to his apartment to to see it. Sat on the bed and read it. He never let it out of his sight. Um, and uh, so it was a again not and and not knowing how it would be received, not knowing at all how it would be received because like a, like him, these were people that he was trying to win over. Who had been in the communist movement for a decade and had devoted their lives to it? And could they be won away to fight against, you know, not just their own American leadership, but the leadership of the Communist International, which to them, to many, was still associated with the gains of the revolutionary, you know, upheavals of 1917?
0: In October 1928, 1928- Cannon and several others were essentially put on trial in a series of meetings that would eventually include numerous comrades being brought in for discussion and over 100 pages of records from the hearings. While Cannon understood his time was essentially over, he stood his ground on various political questions, forcing debates around party structure, leadership, democratic accountability, and political orientations. Could you tell us a bit about the main points of contention during these hearings?
1: I think the main point of contention, and it's kind of striking of how ossified the party had become, the main point of contention really was the right to read documents, the right to actually debate positions, the right to actually question strategies and tactics of the communist international and the sort of programmatic foundations of the Communist Party, which claimed to be the sort of vanguard movement of social transformation in America. Many, many individuals had no idea what Trotskyism really was, and what the Trotskyist critique of the degeneration of the revolutionary movement inside the you know the Soviet Union in its party uh, in the Communist International entailed. They were not allowed to read documents. Uh, It was so ridiculous that uh, some people who were hauled before this commission were asked, well, why do you uh, distrust, uh, you know, so-and-so? Well, they were reading about China. And I understand that China is a Trotskyist project. I'm, I'm paraphrasing that, but this is You know, to even read about what what went on in China in 1926 to 1927 was in some senses to haul yourself into the kind of inquisition and suspicion of the, 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 the official communist movement of the time. So, you know, for Cannon and others, it was really the necessity of being able to discuss these issues to bring documents to the fore, to have people read their the, the, the newspaper that they would eventually publish, The Militant, which laid out many of these questions. Um, and it was really, it was amazing to them who had actually been reared on the free speech fights of the IWW and for you know the right to read uh, dissident literatures as, as youths, right? To have to, in a communist party, to put forward this position that we really, uh, w- what we're really fighting about is the right to read and think and function as dissidents uh, in a party that is premised on, on not just dissidents, but on the necessity of using that dissidents uh, to create a revolutionary transformation inside America.
0: Upon returning to the United States, Cannon had known his time in the party was limited and immediately set to work in conjunction with several trusted comrades, including the Canadian communist you mentioned, Morris Spector, whom he'd interacted with in Moscow. With access to various mailing lists, he immediately set out to prepare an oppositional faction before a formal expulsion could occur. What did Cannon and his comrades manage to accomplish before being kicked out of the Workers' Party? What did the emerging Trotskyist party, with substantial support in various places such as Chicago and Minneapolis, look like?
1: Well, I think that uh, um, what they accomplished in their uh, in the trial in, in the trials when they were when you know which was a foregone conclusion that they were going to be kicked out. But what was very interesting was was that Lovestone, who was then the leadership in the leadership of the American Party. He wanted to use the trials not just to get rid of Cannon and Shackman and Avern, which he knew he was going to be able to do, but also to tar Foster with the brush of having been associated with Cannon in various trade union uh, struggles. So Lovestone ironically let the trial proceedings drag on and more and more be said. Uh, And uh, in some senses, granted Cannon and others more leeways than, for instance, would be evident in the Moscow trials in in the Soviet Union in, in, you know, in 1937. Um, So uh, this allowed Cannon and Shackman and Abram to actually, uh, you know, um, expose in some senses the problems in the American Communist Party. And it won them uh, a significant number of recruits. Not a huge number, but a significant number. Now, more and more, uh, communists began to then question uh, what was going on. Minneapolis, which would become a center of uh, the American Trotskyist movement, uh, and had a significant number of older, militant, working class uh, communists in its ranks um, was originally expelled en masse not because they voiced support for Cannon but because they said simply we don't understand what this debate is about and we want to read the materials that was enough for Lovestone at that point once Cannon and others had been dismissed to simply uh, expel en masse the the Minneapolis uh, um uh, uh, communists, and so the process of of Cannon recruiting uh, through introducing people to the to the documents of to the document of Trotskyism really that he had, that was then reinforced by the Communist Party's leadership, Lovestone and company, expelling people and pushing them pushing them towards Cannon forcing them in some ways into the canonist camp. And then they picked up as well, along the way, uh, various people that, you know, that were in the Communist Party that had been, in some senses, occupying kind of subterranean territory. A small group of Hungarians, some Italians, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, some people, you know, associated with... uh, 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 a, a dissident in Amtorg, which was the Soviet uh, sort of business uh, um, trade uh, uh, emissary in, in, in New York. Um, but still, uh, after a number of months of this, the number of Trotskyists who had aligned with Canon were probably about 150. Not a huge amount, not a huge amount, but the beginnings of a movement um, and highly dedicated. You know, highly dedicated, able to put out a newspaper, uh, able to engage in an ambitious publishing program of the rudimentary works of Trotskyism uh, and uh, willing to, you know, basically orient to uh, the Communist Party. But that's the that's the key. These people were they, they, they founded the Communist League of America opposition as an external tendency of the American Communist Party. They still thought, while they were uh, excluded from, while they had been excommunicated, if you will, they were still trying to win back the membership of the CP because they regarded the CP still as containing within it the most advanced revolutionary workers in the United States.
0: In the conclusion of the book, you offer a number of reflections that are worth teasing out. First of all, one of the serious blind spots of the time was Canon and others' inability to take issues around race and gender seriously. There were often formal acknowledgments of these issues, but this was often uh, not met with a follow through in terms of integrating it in a more in depth way into their critical analysis and their political program. Could you talk about the blind spots in this period?
1: Yeah, um, and and when really, when we're talking about, uh, the politics of identity in our time, which are more diverse and varied, um, really in the twenties, you are talking essentially about race and gender, um, disability, sexual orientation, those were not really, uh, and others were not really on the table then, but race and gender work. Um, and I have a, in some senses, a, well, I have a two-sided kind of, View of this. On the one hand, um, there were efforts made to address uh, gender, particularly in terms of working class women, uh, their the the particularities of their needs, uh, particularly as as it was related to trade union organization, etc. The Communist Party and Cannon and others uh, tried to address issues of race and gender. As much or more so than the Socialist Party, as much or more so than the IWW, as much or more so than the mainstream political parties. So, on the one hand, you do have to appreciate that these areas, so long marginal uh, to uh, dissident mobilizations in the US, um, were addressed in some ways by the Communist Party. Was it adequate? No. One reason why it was inadequate was that these areas often became political footballs in the factional contests uh, that basically distorted the American communist experience. So, for instance, um, a tragedy of the early attempts to address race in the Communist Party was that race became really a factional Uh, was a proprietary factional interests of the Lovestone group. They really, if you look at the early Communist Party and blacks that were drawn to it, and there were a number in the 1920s, including remnants of the African Blunt Brotherhood, which was a a, a Caribbean uh, radical grouping, uh, they largely were controlled by the Lovestone group. And as such, they were contaminated by this factionalism that and, and which, in some senses, played a role in, for instance, hiving off black work, which was controlled by the Lovestone faction, from the trade union or social justice uh, campaigns that were more controlled by Foster and Cannon. Um, and ditto with gender. They tried to have a woman's department. They tried to publish some issues, uh, publish do do some publications around around issues of gender. But for the most part. These questions were seen as subordinate to the class question, rather than seen as you know intersecting with them and 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 of being of, of, of embedded within uh, you know class questions and deserving of uh, important uh, consideration. So I I'd, I'd say it was inadequate, but that the communist movement, as inadequate as it was, and as explainable as was that inadequacy by factionalism, they were still doing more than a lot of other radical groups were doing.
0: An animating theme throughout this period that you've been talking about a lot just now was ongoing factional struggles, many of which were intensified under the shadow of Stalinization in Moscow that made a quiet impact on Cannon and his contemporaries. In the wake of this and with his discovery of Trotskyism as a revolutionary alternative, to Stalinist bureaucratization, Cannon would emerge with some hard-won lessons on political organizing and leadership. Could you tell us about some of the lessons Cannon learned here and how they would inform his political practice later in life?
1: Yeah, I think that for Cannon, he, he learned a lot of bad lessons in the Communist Party. And he, was, he, he, he would later acknowledge this. He learned, you know, some... Uh, he learned about being a bureaucrat. Uh, he learned about uh, basically uh, putting uh, one's place within the regime and one's faction within the regime on a, on a, on a primary footing rather than in some senses putting uh, the, the footing of the possibilities of the American Revolution as primary and subordinating factionalism to that. And it was impossible not to learn those lessons in a communist party that was undergoing Stalinization, because that was how one survived in some senses. Um, but I think what Cannon came away uh, learning, and it was, it was lessons that he had to constantly rethink and go back to again, was that one should not uh, strangle uh, one's Uh, parties' possibilities uh, with bureaucratism, with factionalism. One should let uh, also the full uh, discourse of a debate and a political difference unfold within the party uh, and let various uh, um, uh, positions be elaborated upon by their supporters so that you could win over uh, people. He believed very much in winning over people to the political program rather than imposing, uh, the political program. Um, and that's a, that was a, that's a, that's a difficult, uh, um, lesson to learn and to thoroughly assimilate in small group politics, which is what we're really talking about here in terms of, you know, trying to build a mass party out of really, uh, uh rudimentary, uh, beginnings. Um, he also learned uh, the necessity of, uh, and I think this was Cannon's skill as an as an organizer, and as this kind of mechanic, who 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 could uh, put together disparate uh, um, um, parts of the machinery of a, of a party organization. What Cannon did learn was that no individual has within themselves the totality of all the skills and attributes that are needed to build a revolutionary uh, movement. Instead, you have to take the human material that you have on hand and you have to use what what, what people can best contribute and you have to struggle to minimize their tendencies to then disrupt or demobilize. Um, And this was something that he was aware of in himself, and he became uh, you know, aware of uh, in others. He wasn't always successful, but I believe that he had more of a, a sensibility around these kinds of problems of party building uh, in, in, in uh, inauspicious times uh, than many leaders of revolutionary movements have had.
0: In reflecting on this period of Canon's life, as well as the broader revolutionary movement at this time, you argue that, in spite of its blind spots and shortcomings, there was what you call a revolutionary innocence that animated it. Rather than see this as a fault in comparison to a much more sober-minded politics, you actually think there's something valuable to it that we ought to rediscover, cultivate, and maintain today. So given the resurgence of interest in organized labor and radical left politics, especially among young people, could you explain what you mean by innocence here and how we might allow it to be an animating part of radical politics in the 21st century?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. And I think using that phrase has caused me some grief in the sense that there are some people who've been quite critical of that uh, phrase of revolutionary innocence. Um, what I meant by that um, is it was very specific to that particular period in which Cannon uh, came of age as a, as, a, as a revolutionary communist and assumed a leadership position in the Communist Party, um, and then had to basically shift gears and mount a critique of that very party that he had helped to build and join. Um the revolutionary innocence was really, in some sense, a time-bound phrasing which I used to convey the extent to which a generation of American revolutionaries placed really um, almost unquestioning faith in the Soviet Union and what it had accomplished in 1917. I mean, for revolutionaries like Cannon, born in 1890, really coming of age, as he said, in 1911, joining the revolutionary movement in the IWW, witnessing you know the carnage of imperialist war and the breakup of all kinds of radical organizations and the emergence of a new possibility, a dawn of a new day with the creation of, a, of the Soviet Union and a Workers' Republic. They invested in that, not only enthusiasm, but unquestioned loyalties for a time. And the, that's what I meant to convey with the phrase, you know, revolutionary innocence. When Cannon broke out of that revolutionary innocence, it was a, a really disruptive moment in which he had to basically relinquish 10 years that he had invested in building a communist movement on the foundation of that innocence in some senses, right? A belief that what came out of the revolution of 1917 and hence out of Moscow and its leadership was, you know, and he had seen firsthand the positives and the values in that early in the communist experiment. It took him a while to break from that, Innocence and that enthusiastic reception to appreciate that things could go wrong, and in fact they were going very wrong from the mid nineteen twenties on, and Stalinism was just was was the expression of that. Um, so, in a way, Cannon would never again trust intuitively the leadership of a, a, an international. He was committed to and believed firmly in the necessity of that leadership, but he wasn't going to unquestioningly accept it. That's what I meant from the, the, the sort of break from you know, revolutionary innocence. And indeed, even with Trotsky, there were times early in the 1930s when Cannon was communicating with Trotsky that he later said, well, I was testing him. You know, I wrote to him in this way, in this way, on this problem, and this problem, and I was testing him. I wanted to know, is he going to lay down the law? Is he going to tell us how to function in the American communist movement? Or is he going to offer us the kind of guidance that the early you know, revolutionaries offered us? But the notion that even after signing on with Trotsky in some senses, as the antidote to Stalin, he still felt the need to test Trotsky was a reflection that, you know, he'd move beyond what that phrase, the phrase that I used of revolutionary innocence. Uh, some people probably think that Cannon was never an innocent in any way, shape or form and uh, would uh, would be dismissive of my use of it. But um That's the sense in which I meant it. Now, what it means for today, that's hard to say because in some senses, we've come so far in the opposite direction of not trusting anything, you know, in the revolutionary tradition. And each social movement that emerges uh, in some senses saying, this is our movement. And our issues are the issues. I mean, I would like to see more of, in some senses, not revolutionary innocence, but more of a revolutionary universalism of a, a, a an appreciation of the necessity of totalizing struggles and incorporating particularistic struggles into, you know, uh, a broader anti-capitalist, uh, you know, mobilization. But that's a whole other and large, very large question.
0: Yeah, a whole other book. Uh, So that brings us through your first volume on James Cannon. I'm currently working on the second one. Uh, So very much enjoyed this conversation and looking forward to talking to you again on the next one.
1: Well, thanks very much, Stephen. I appreciated uh, the time and, and everything that you're doing in this realm. Thanks.